Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Follower Podcast all the way from Germany. I'm coming to you this morning from a little kitchen in a place called Hebron in the town of Hedenhut. And uh, this kitchen, it kind of looks like uh, it looks like a hobbit's cave. It's a very exciting space. So if you hear a little bit of the echoing and that kind of thing, that's because I'm basically Frodo Baggins today, which I'm I'm pretty excited about. I think that's that's pretty great. I'll I'll uh, I'll embrace all of that. So been at uh, YWAM Hidden Hut for uh, just over two weeks now, and um, came through the first week of uh, sort of intensive teaching. And we looked at a whole bunch of things. And I'm going to just kind of summarize that for you on this episode and hope that it's helpful. As a starting point, there's a quote by a guy called A.W. Tozer, which has always been, uh, for me, just profoundly true and, and profoundly helpful. And he says, one of the most important things about you is what you think about when you think about God. Um, because ultimately, whoever the God is that you worship, you are going to become that God. So whether you are listening into this and you're not really sure you believe in a God or whether you're listening into this and you would uh, call yourself Christian, uh, you have, when you hear the word God, that's a thought, that's a container, right? That word is a container for an idea. And whatever that idea is, is going to determine a lot of who you are as a person. And so unfortunately, a lot of the reason why we, we really struggle with some of the expressions of our Christianity and our faith uh, all over the world in, in so many different ways is because that word God holds an idea that's not really true to the God that we see in the Bible. And so people pledge their allegiance to this God. They even call this God Jesus. And yet, so many of the moving parts and working mechanisms of that idea that they have are not conducive to the person of Jesus himself. And so with that thought in mind, it was really great that this week we looked at um, sort of the main theme was called the, the nature and character of God. And uh, our lecturer, Ian, did such a fantastic job of really taking us through sort of a broad biblical overview of the story of God, all the way through from Genesis through to Revelation, and just hitting the highlight points of, of what the Bible, the big story, God's big story as represented in the Bible, is really telling us about this God. And I've got to tell you, it was um, phenomenal for me. So a lot of the ideas I had known, I guess, before, but... Um, I don't know, seeing them in this context and, and in such quick succession, going through that whole big story in just a week, um, really highlighted for me so many of the things that are really important for us as we think about who God is and, and as we try to align our lives around this God. And I want to just invite you, if you're listening into this and you're someone who's not sure about this whole faith thing, again, I would say to you, you have a God. Uh, with respect, you know, uh, there is, there's no re really, there's not really such a thing as an atheist in, and and not in a condescending way, but just to say we will always attach ultimate meaning to something that it's built into us. This is uh, we can't get away from that impulse, right? And so you may not worship the God that people call Jesus, or you may not have an idea of some kind of supernatural God, but ultimately you have attached ultimate meaning to something, and whatever you've attached that ultimate meaning to, that in so many ways ways determines the course and nature of your life, right? And you start to become, in a profound sense, a microcosm, a miniature version of that which you've attached ultimate meaning to, your God. 
And so uh, from a Christian perspective, at least, it's important that if we're going to talk about following the God we find in Jesus, that as best we can, and, and, and I get that this is an ongoing journey, for, really for the rest of our lives, right, on this side of eternity, we're going to be working out what it means to follow this God and who this God actually is. But there are some really fundamental base things that we can get our heads around and our hearts around that help us... Uh, at least set our coordinates in the right direction, right? At least set our compass bearings in the right direction so that we're not running off on all kinds of destructive tangents, uh, following all kinds of broken pictures of God, calling them Jesus, uh, and ultimately not really worshiping Jesus in a healthy way at all. And so that's what we're going to talk about in this episode today. Who is Jesus? What is he doing? And what does it mean to follow him in the world today? My name is Matt Lewis. This is the Follower Podcast, and everyone is invited to the conversation. Cool. So, to kick us off, um, I'm going to start at the beginning, and then I'm going to jump all the way to the end, and then we're going to give you pieces of the puzzle that fill in in the middle. So, if you can think about it like a puzzle, I don't know how you build puzzles. But what my mom always used to tell me to do, and my grand would tell me to do this as well when we would do puzzles, is they'd say, get the corners set up and then build the borders. And once you've got the borders and the corners set up, then you can fill in the pieces in the middle and it makes more sense, right? So we're going to do that a little bit. We're going to start at the beginning. We're going to jump all the way to the end. And then we're going to fill in the pieces in the middle. And hopefully in the midst of this kind of very quick overview of the big story of who God is, we get a glimpse of some important things about who God is that helps us kind of direct our lives in the direction of Him. So it's important to say that uh, the Bible starts in a book called Genesis, right? Now, if you are familiar with Christianity, that may seem like an obvious statement. If you're not, welcome. There's a book called Genesis that starts the Bible story off. And right in the beginning of this book, there's these, these critical words, in the beginning, God that's always an important thought for me to recognize that before there was something, there was God. And, and this is a hard thing for us to get our heads around when we grow up in a culture of humanistic sort of independence where we want to be God. It's hard for us to get our heads around the fact that we weren't there in the beginning, that the, that, that sentence doesn't read in the beginning us. It reads, in the beginning, God, that there is something, some one, a personality, an eternal, uh, powerful being entity that is source. So all life, everything that's created flows out of this individual, this person or this personality. Um, and God is, as we'll see, so much more than humanity, but he's not less than humanity, right? And, and we're going to get into that as we go. So in the beginning, God, and then God said, and the thing that God said was, let there be light, right? Now, this is a beautiful picture because you uh, run all the way to John, the first one of the Gospels. And in the first chapter of John, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it goes on to talk about how this Word was the person of Jesus and how by the person of Jesus, everything was created. So this light moment that we're reading about in Genesis is, is the person of Jesus actively bringing illumination to the world, pulling things together, right? Then we go on, and it's um, 
creation. And creation is explosive and expansive and powerful. It's almost as if, uh, I don't know if you were younger, ever you, when you were younger, you played with fireworks, right? We did this all the time. And what we would do, we would go down to a, like a felt, like a little field outside our house. We would take a dustbin and then we would get these things called widow makers, which were these giant, basically mini dynamite sticks, right? <laughs> and then we would get a bunch of these widow makers and we would put them underneath this big black dustbin and then we would light those widow makers. And when they exploded, man, that dustbin just like flew up into the air and pieces just pumped all over the place, all over that field. And uh, it's kind of that's kind of the picture you get, at least for me, in this Genesis account. It's almost like there was there was a beginning, God said, and then we go for it. And God says this and God says that. And things are just being creative, uh, which tells us a little bit about God already in that God is a generative, creative force. Whatever God is, and please remember again and again and again, I'm going to say that that word God it's really a container for an idea. And so it's less important that we get hung up on the word God. It's more important that we figure out what that word's holding, what idea is, is occupying that, that word and that thought. So this God we see in, in Genesis is like explosively generative, creative. Things are flowing from this God. Uh, all kinds of animals and things are being separated and things are being pulled together and there's skies and seas and there are fish and there are animals. And, and, and here's the beautiful thing. Everything has been created the whole time. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good, right? And, and this is a good question for us because at a philosophical level, are things fundamentally good or are things fundamentally evil? It's a, great, it's a great question for you to ask yourself as a human being. Do you think you are at a base level, at the foundation of your person? Do you think you are, you are profoundly corrupt in your nature at a base level? Or do you think you are, you are actually redemptively good in your nature at a base level? Now, the Genesis account goes on and it says, as this God is generatively exploding out creation from itself, <laughs> um, it's good. What's coming from this God is good. And then there's this moment when they have this conversation. It says, let us make man, human being, in our image. That language is critical, right? Because here we see the first picture of the idea of Trinitarian community. So if you didn't know this, if you're listening in as someone who's sort of exploring Christianity and faith, one of the core convictions as a Christian person is that the God who stands at the center of our belief is, is a community, a community of being, a father, a son, and a spirit that live in relationship one another with one another, deferring love um, to one another, and out of this community, creation happens. So at the core of us, at the core of human beings, at the core of all creation, is a community. And that's profoundly, profoundly important. I think about the words of Desmond Tutu, who says that my humanity is tied up in your humanity because we can only truly be human together. Whatever it is to be on this planet, whatever it means to be human, we can't do it alone. And, and in a, an increasingly individualistic, isolated culture, that matters, right? And so out of this community of being, humans are created. And it even goes so far as to say that, you know, man is created, and then there's this observation by the creator that it's not good for this man to be alone. And so a second is created as well. And so that, again, it just speaks to this important narrative of community. But here's the thing you need to know. When humanity is created, at least in the heart of its creator, it's not just good, it's very good. 
It is in some senses the crowning point of all creation, humanity. Uh, this, this really does matter because we are confused about what it means to be human in our context. Uh, it, it is either a bad thing, as in, don't judge me, I'm only human, or it's this profoundly good thing, as in, look at those people and all the work that they're doing, they must be humanitarians. So even in our context and in our culture, we're not really sure what it means to be human. But in this story of Genesis, what we find is that the God we worship thinks that humanity is very good. So when we act in broken ways, when we kill each other and rob from each other and debase each other and, and jeopardize one another's safety and, and, and take from instead of give to and break down instead of build up, when we do that, we're not actually being human. We're being less than human. We're subhuman because that is not acting in the image of this creative God that we're seeing in this opening story. And so really the invitation of the God that we worship is that we would come back to our humanity, right? Powerful picture. And then there's a story of everything's good, 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 uh, beautiful creation. And this creator God sets parameters and says that you can, says to these people that is created, you can have everything in this garden. And then there's one parameter, just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Right. Um, powerful observation here is that often we get hung up on the one thing we can't have instead of celebrating all that we can have. And, and this, again, goes into the issue that we don't like to be subdued. We don't like to be under authority. Our independence breaks us because we want to be our own gods, right? And you see this in the story of Adam and Eve uh, in this creation story is that this created God is walking in intimacy with its creation in this created order, this God in space. And then we see the first introduction of evil in the form of the serpent. And what the serpent does is it sows doubt and then brings rebellion, which results in, just in a broken relationship in our humanity. So the question is, did God really say is there really this parameter? And if there is this parameter, what's the reason for this parameter? Is it perhaps because this God is insecure? Is it perhaps because this God is holding out on you? Is it perhaps because this God knows that if you eat this, then you will have the power to decide good and evil for yourself, to be self-determining instead of to be under the authority of another? And hasn't that always been the temptation of humanity for all of time? And so we see humanity receiving this lie into itself and then rebelling against the God who created it. And here's the irony of it, right? The, the, the temptation of, of the serpent is to say, God knows that if you eat this, you'll be like God. But the irony is that humanity was already like God. Humanity already had the image of God in itself. And so evil, as it always does, op operates in counterfeit, okay? giving you a cheap substitute of your eternal original. We see this in sexuality, right? God has set up parameters and boundaries in which sex can operate beautifully. And there is freedom and beauty in that space. And yet, the evilness in our world offers us cheap counterfeits like pornography and prostitution uh, that we can, we can determine how and when we do what we want to do. And that starts to break down our humanity. And so we weren't happy to just be managers in the garden. We wanted to be owners of the garden, basically. And that sits at the core of, of what's broken in us. That's why we become less than human in our being. And so there's consequence for that. Um, as they eat this fruit, as they step into their autonomy, their eyes are opened and shame is induced. 
Okay, Shame being one of the crippling factors between us and this God. And so humanity goes into hiding. But here's the beautiful picture is even in the place of judgment, there is still grace. I think of Jesus when it says that Jesus came full of grace and full of truth. And he is this beautiful combination of profound, piercing holiness and at the same time grace and mercy that gives us access to that holiness. And you see that even in the garden because there is this um, judgment that happens consequence of choice and Adam and Eve have to leave the garden but at the same time there is a sacrifice maybe an echo of something to come that covers the shame of these two human beings in the in the form of an animal skin and as they're covered then they walk out into the consequence of their action and then we know that the garden gate is closed and by a sword and some guarding angels so that they can't get to the tree of life. And so now here we have this profoundly good humanity living in the consequence of a rebellious decision and sitting outside the Garden of Eden. And, uh, and here we see a whole bunch of ramifications that start to flow from there. But put pause on that. Let's run all the way to the end. So the thing I would want to point out is when we start at the beginning of the story, what we see is hope. It's this profound hope that kind of saturates those opening verses of Genesis. There, it, there is formlessness and shapelessness and darkness. And out of that darkness, shapelessness and formlessness comes shape, form and light and life. And so there is this narrative, the base starting point of the story of God is that whoever God is, God is a hope bringer. God is about hope. Okay, And then we see rebellion and that hope is compromised. But when we fast forward to the end of the story, so if you didn't know, the Bible ends with a book called Revelation. And Revelation comes to us from a dude called John. And John is on an island called Patmos. And he has this vision. He has a picture of who of Jesus, really. And Jesus is telling him a whole bunch of stuff and showing him a whole bunch of stuff. And it's just crazy, man. This is amazing. But, but there's this beautiful picture in chapter 21 of Revelation of the new heaven and the new earth. Now, if you're not tracking, here's, this, here's the big story at the moment of the gospel of, of what Jesus is doing is that everything was created in God. And there is a time coming when God will restore everything to its original purpose. And so we see that in Revelation 21, that there is this new heaven and this new earth, a city of God that kind of comes down to us from the sky. Now, as soon as people start reading all this stuff, they get all weird about it and they go, they get caught up on the particulars. So I've had arguments with people about whether it's really city made with streets uh, made of gold and whether that gold is really transparent and whether the gates are really pearls, etc., etc., etc. And I want to just say I think that's missing the point because I think what John is trying to do is translate into temporary language and eternal revelation. And anybody who's ever tried to do that knows the complexities of that, right? And so we shouldn't get caught up really on the particulars of how many bricks are in the streets of the city. What we need to get caught up on is the nature of the city and what this city is telling us about the God who runs it, right? And one of the first things that stands out to me is that the story ends with this new city that doesn't even need a sun because the glory of God is its light. That's crazy, man. And here's the other cool thing about the city, right? There is a river that flows from out of the throne of God, and it flows under the trees 
of life. So here's the thing. In Genesis, at the beginning of the story, there was one tree of life. In Revelation, at the end of the story, there are multiple trees of life. And these trees of life have leaves that fall into a river. And those leaves are for the healing of the nations. And here's what it says about the city. It says that its gates are never closed. So Genesis, we're reading about a garden, an Eden, a perfect created space, and then there's rebellion, consequence, and separation, and the gates are shut, okay? But at the end of the story, how it all ends, and we're not there yet, this is what's still coming our way, is that there is a new city, great and glorious and powerful. There is even more life. There's an expansive life. This life is for the healing of not just some people, but all People. So this is not just a you're in and I'm out kind of thing. This is a all nations, all tribes, all tongues, every person. I'm here in Germany. I'm walking through streets. I'm meeting a bunch of people I didn't even know existed from my little house in Johannesburg, South Africa. And here's the thing. Jesus has always known these people in Germany. Okay, and, and I'm meeting people in my dorm room. And at the moment, I've got a friend from Germany. I've got two friends from the Netherlands. I've got a friend from Bangladesh. I've got a friend from Egypt. I've got another friend from Switzerland. I mean, this, this place is like, it, it's crammed full of different kinds of nationalities, right? And everyone coming together and adding into the space. And, and, and here's what I know. Jesus loves every single one of those people and knows all of those people. And so we see this city that has this river and it's this healing for all people, every tribe and tongue and language, right? Every single person. This is profound. If you're listening from South Africa, this matters. When we think about our history, I don't know who your God is, but if your God allows you to stay within the box confinements of your own racism or prejudice, that is not the God we see in the Bible. Right? And we've got to be challenged with that kind of stuff. Because this river that this God is about, it's for the healing of all nations. And it's an abundant kind of beautiful healing. It's even more than the original garden story. right? And, and here's what I love is that the gates are always open. There's access. Whatever's happened in the middle of the story has moved us from being separated from God outside of God and to being now with God in His glory, so much so that we don't even need sun. And the gates of the city are now never closed. <laughs> I love that. That's how the story ends. That's what we look forward to. And so we see that the story starts with hope, and we see that the story ends with hope. And so the big story of God is really hope to hope. Yeah. And, and what, what we know about the God that writes this kind of story is that he himself is a God of hope. So as you're listening to this, wherever you are in the world, whatever you're dealing with right now, the thing in front of you is not the final word. Right. As Christian people, particularly, we have the fancy language for it is we have an eschatology of hope, a theology of the end that gives us hope. It's a defiant hope. It's a powerful hope. Right. It's not superficial sentimentalism. We're not, we're not just thinking nice thoughts. We have a deep and profound conviction that whatever Jesus has done is, has settled it, is powerful, and has established something in the future that is coming our way. And so regardless, the, the language of Paul is, 
all our light and momentary afflictions, right? Oh, we consider these things worth nothing when we compare it to the eternal weight of glory that we will inherit in Jesus Christ. Uh, there is a hope coming that overshadows your sickness, that overshadows your financial situation, that overshadows your family struggle, that overshadows your personal insecurity. That oh, it, There is a hope coming that is so much bigger than anything that you are currently facing right now. And that is the God we worship. So if one of the most important things about you is what you think about when you think about God, then what I want you to know is that our God is a God of hope. So that's the beginning and that's the end. Now, what happens in the middle? All right, now I'm, I'm going to go fast through this <laughs> for the sake of time. But in the middle, we see a whole bunch of different characters. And I'm actually going to I'll put a picture up on Instagram that kind of gives you this timeline, just a little snapshot of it, if that's helpful. So Genesis, okay. There's this separation. They're outside the garden, Adam and Eve. But even in this tragedy, there is already a glimmer of hope because there's a conversation between God and the woman and the serpent. And there's this whole cursing thing that happens where it says the, the serpent's going to crawl on its belly. And then so all the consequences of our, our choice to try and be God, right? But then there's this powerful conversation where God says to the woman that you're going to have offspring, and from this offspring, there's going to come one who is going to crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent bites the heel of this person. So, so get this picture. There's a serpent, the picture of evil in the story. Now, we've come to know the language of Satan, the deceiver or the devil or whatever you want to think about, the, the personification of evil in our worldview. This serpent is going to bite the heel of a person that's going to come from Eve, from her lineage. But when this, this serpent bites the heel of this person, this person will crush the head of the serpent. So there will be something inflicted on the person, but the person will overcome evil through that. Now, right there in that moment, we have one of the first echoes of the messianic uh, expectation of who Jesus will be. Because on the cross, Jesus is bitten in the heel by the serpent, but he crushes the head of the serpent. That's what, that's what we see. So even in the midst of this tragedy, and it is a tragedy, there is already a seed of hope. God is saying already, he's planting a piece there and saying, I'm not done. I'm not defeated. The story doesn't end like this. And then it fast forwards and we've got this guy called Noah and he's living in this time, which is just really, it's dreadful, right? Humanity's lost the way, living in the full consequence of their own autonomy, uh, trying to be God for themselves. And, and God really comes to a place where he says, I regret that I made humanity. But he finds one guy, Noah, and Noah has been faithful to God. And so there is a flood and there is a cleansing and there's the ark and we get all those pictures. But, but here's what the beautiful picture is, right? Noah comes and he brings a sacrifice to God. That's what I love, is that God, Noah's heart is repentance over this flood, after this flood. He sacrifices something to God, and God is moved by the sacrifice and responds to him and says to Noah and gives them the picture of a rainbow, which is now this first, like, this first agreement with Noah and says to him, I will never again do this. And here's the beautiful thing about this first, the fancy language for it is covenant, this agreement, this, this deal that is now made between Noah and God is that it comes completely from the side of God. God is the only one in this situation who's going to hold up the deal and says to Noah, through you, Noah, I will build a new humanity and never again will this kind of thing happen to you. So there we see a picture of a God who moves toward open hearts and promises and pursues humanity and promises that he will bring humanity out of where they are. Fast forward again. 
And we meet up with a guy called Abraham, right? And uh, Abraham's standing outside looking up at the stars, and God makes a promise with Abraham. Uh, and he says to him, Abraham, I want you to look at all the stars, and can you count them? And Abraham, of course, can't count them. And he's like 100 years old right now, right? And out of this, he says to Abraham, I'm going to give you as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. And you will be blessed. And through you, nations will be blessed, Abraham. And there is this covenant where Abraham has to uh, cut apart some animals. Uh, there's a goat, there's a cow, and there's a ram. He has to cut them in, in half. And then he walks through these things. And this was common in the time of the people where blood meant something. So blood signified life. And this is another agreement. And so Abraham walks through it in order to say that I'm in on this God. But then there's this vision of this weird pot. Uh, it's like a strange picture, but really what it signifies is that actually God is the one who's walking through the covenant and God is taking responsibility again on himself. And he's saying, I will be the one who holds up my end of the bargain here, Abraham. So even when you are, the Bible uses the language, faithless, I will be faithful. And again and again and again, we see this God pursuing people. Then there's this guy, Moses, right? Grows up in Egypt and um, has to come out of Egypt and it flees because he kills someone in Egypt. And then he's out in the wilderness and he has this burning bush moment and God appears to him. Crazy, crazy, crazy. And at this time, Israel, which is the nation that's come out of Abraham, goes is currently enslaved to the nation of Egypt. And so God says to Moses, I'm going to send you into Egypt and I'm going to bring my people out of Egypt. Again, God pursuing his people. In Egypt. Then there's this guy, David, right? Remember, there, would, there was always being built up this expectation that there would be a king that would come, the, this snake crusher. And this is kind of what happens through the whole story. And then there's this King David. And David, although he's not a perfect man, by no means, he is a man after God's own heart. This is significant because he, in, a, in a line of kings that lost their way, in a line of kings that compromised a whole bunch of things, that that ate from the tree, if you will, right, that had that same spirit. David is one of the kings that stands out as one who really wanted to pursue the things of God, whose passion was not to build a house for himself, but to build a house for God. And God sees that and he moves toward that. And through David makes a covenant and says, through you, David, your line and through the nation of, through the tribe of Judah, I'm going to bring the snake crusher, essentially. And so we see David. And then we fast forward to this guy, Solomon. And Solomon makes this temple. Solomon's wise, but here's the thing. Solomon likes wives. <laughs> and so he gets a bunch of them. And with, the, with these wives come in different worldviews and different religions and other gods. And Solomon starts to lose his way. And then we get the two kings and we get Jeroboam and Rehoboam, right? Um, now Rehoboam, he, he kind of triples the workload over the nation of Israel. Um, and so as a result, there's a rebellion and you get the southern kingdom and you get the northern kingdom. I'm doing a very quick overview here. Uh, Jeroboam essentially takes 10 of the tribes of Israel and Rehoboam stays king over the nation or the tribe of Judah. Okay. Uh, but here's the thing with Jeroboam is uh, he loses the way. And he starts worshiping other gods. Ahab uh, comes after him as a king. And Baal, the, the prophets of Baal and those gods all get involved. And then Assyria comes. And Israel is essentially scattered, those 10 tribes. And so we kind of lose those tribes. But then there's this guy, Rehoboam, with the tribe of Judah. And through him comes a king called Josiah, who, who refines the word of God and celebrates that thing. And so there's this kind of 
a celebration of coming back to God. But then there's Babylon and the tribe of Judah is in captivity for 70 years with Babylon. And they return to Jerusalem. And for 400 years, there's kind of the silence, right? And they're looking back on everything and they're looking back on how they've lost the way and how they've compromised in faith and how this has brought so many consequences and how now the 10 tribes of Israel have been scattered all across and essentially are lost and how Judah has lost its way and has been captive in Babylon and now back to Jerusalem. And really, when we see the story in its broadest frame, we just see Israel again and again and again choosing not to submit itself to God, choosing to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, choosing to try and be God. And we see consequence and consequence and consequence after consequence. But then there's this time where they come back to Jerusalem. They kind of rebuild themselves as a nation. And there's 400 years there where the prophets aren't speaking. Uh, and, and there's kind of silence. And so because they have seen what's happened in the past, these guys called Pharisees and teachers of the religious law, they rise up and they, they become um, fixated on the law. They become, they become fixated on trying to do things right because they never again want to be what the nation of Israel has been. Um, and so for 400 years, they start adding laws, law upon law upon law upon law upon law. And so the nation of Israel becomes legally bound, right? And, but their hearts are not in it necessarily, and it's not necessarily bringing them life. And then all of a sudden, on, onto the scene comes this guy, John the Baptist, and after 400 years of silence, John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he rocks up and he starts declaring, he starts saying, prepare the way because the snake crusher is coming, right? And then as he starts to do this, he's had a cousin and this guy's name is Jesus, right? Jesus of Nazareth. If you want to get technical about it, his name would have been Jehoshua ben Joseph, Right? Jesus, son of Joseph. But here's the thing that we realize about Jesus when we look at it is that this Jesus, he's the Christ. He's the anointed one. He is the snake crusher, the long-awaited one. And so he comes to liberate Israel, but not in the way that they thought. Because when we look at the story, what we realize is that the issue with Israel, and it's the same issue with us, was never so much about external issues. It was always an issue of the heart. And we see this in prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah saying, there will come a time when the law will be written on their hearts. And from that transformation of the heart, an outward flowing transformation of the nation would happen. And so Jesus comes and he becomes the snake crusher and once and for all deals with the internal issue of the heart. And in this time, he's gathered 12 disciples, uh, all representing the nations of Israel, uh, 12, 12 tribes of Israel. And he brings them together and he shows them a new way of life. And then he gives them his Holy Spirit and something called the church is born. And the church is essentially the continuation of that idea that happened all the way in Abraham, that through you, I will bless you. And through your blessing, there will be a blessing to the nations. That blessing came in the person of Jesus and is now continued through his body on the earth called the Church of Jesus Christ. And we now are the vehicle which carries the story of Jesus forward until such time as we arrive in that future hope of the kingdom of God established 
here. And that kingdom has been established. It just hasn't been fully realized. And so it's buried, just like back in the garden when we saw that little seed. And all through the story, we see seeds of Jesus and God pursuing his people. Even now, when we look around at all the craziness that's going on in the world, we see that this kingdom of God is actually among us. It's buried right here, right now. And as we live out our faith and as we receive the spirit of Jesus himself, our hearts are transformed from the inside out and we become one walking vehicles of his new reality. And everywhere we go, we start to reveal that kingdom on the earth, that new heaven, that new earth, that city with the river for the healing of the nations. And we reveal it, reveal it, reveal it until such time as Jesus comes again and brings it in its fullness. So that's the big story of God. It's massive. I know this is a longer podcast than usual, but as you can see, I have fast forwarded through this thing. What do I want you to take out of this? Here's what I want you to take away. God is a God of hope, and He's a God that pursues His people. And if you are a Christian today, you are a part of a massive story. Please don't think that Jesus wants to come into your heart. He doesn't. He wants you to come into His heart. The story is bigger than you. He's not here to be privatized. He's not here to be imported into our selfish agendas. We have been caught up, saved into a massive story that started started in a garden, right? And ran through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and now and then continue with Jesus, and now finds its lifeblood in the church. And you're a part of that story. You've been written into that story. And so the question becomes what are you going to do about it right how are you going to live into the invitation or are you like are you going to be like so many of the kings that we've read about before and just consistently give your worship and devotion away to the other gods and not become a part of this nation of blessing that God has created us to be that's why we exist as the church and if you are listening in and you're not sure about Jesus you're looking for a reason to follow him here's what my encouragement would be to you (laughs) you want your life to matter don't you Right? In Christ, it matters. In Jesus, you get caught up in a story that is so much bigger than you. Not just bigger than you, not just bigger than your family, not just bigger than your town or your city or your country, but bigger than everything. It is the big story, and you can find your place in it. And when you do, you will experience, along with so many others who have chosen to follow this Jesus, that your story becomes a story, regardless of what you're facing right now, of hope to hope because our God, he's a God of hope. Thanks for listening, guys. And we'll chat to you again next week.